Welcome with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians and chapter 2 and particularly we're looking at verses 20 to 23. We're continuing our series in this letter um, to a young church full of new believers and if you remember some of these new believers are getting a taste for false teaching. Maybe I need something more than Jesus and Paul's response throughout this letter has been emphatic. All you need is Christ. And verses 16 to 19, last time we looked at some of the dimensions of this false teaching. Can religious do's and don'ts, straightforward rules, proof texts, can those things make me holy? Answers Paul, no. Can super spiritual experiences to be found by cultivating a sort of ascetic lifestyle, can those things bring me near to God? And again Paul answers, no. If I want to find the presence of God, experience the power of God, know the love of God, cultivate the fear of God, there is only one way, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. All you need is Christ. Verse 19, holding fast to the head. That's Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Because, as we said, unbelievers can do all the things that the false teaching says you should do and remain unbelievers, remain far from God. Likewise, believers can freely ignore everything this false teaching is saying and enjoy an ever closer walk with God. Because all this stuff is nothing more than, verse 22, human precepts and teachings. Nothing more, verse 23, than self-made religion. It's all come out of somebody's head. It's not been revealed by God through his word. So it says, Paul, don't be taken in. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Well, as we said last time, if the Colossians are taken in, it will be a massive distraction It will also create in the church a culture of them and us because all these rules and regulations, only some people can do them. If you've got the time and the money to polish your beautiful soul, fine. But what about all those people like the slaves, the converted slaves? What about them? They can't. You created them and us and then before long the elites are looking down on everybody else, presiding, passing judgment, And everyone else looking over their shoulders, uh, worrying about what others think. Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. And we thought about the implications of all of that for 2024 and for Emily Park Chapel. So if you missed last week's message, uh, do catch up. It's half term, isn't it? So we've got people visiting, which is grand, and our people are elsewhere. So catch up if you missed last week. as it were, bring you up to speed. But Paul's not finished with this false teaching yet. He's he's given it a right battering, um, but verses 20 to 23, he delivers a knockout blow. So let's remind ourselves what these verses are saying. In some senses, it's straightforward. In other senses, it's a little bit tricky. So verse 20, let's, let's remind ourselves. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why... As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used 
according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Five things to say, five points. Point number one, the stoichia. Verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world. It's the same, word, same expression as used in verse 8. Um, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. <laughs> Sounds very odd, doesn't it? Very strange. The elemental spirits of the world. What's all that about? Well, an alternative rendering, you could also render the Greek um, as the elementary principles of the world. And the Greek word is, is stoichia. Does that go us any closer? What's, what's it all about? The elementary principles of this world. It's talking about the stuff of which this world is made. Okay, verse 21, what you handle, taste, touch. Well, says this false teaching, this elemental stuff, the fabric of which this world is made, this stuff directly impacts on your spiritual life. If you handle this stuff in the right way, you'll be a better Christian. So, verses 20 and 21, submit yourself to the right regulations. Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Submit yourself to regulations like that, the handling of the stuff of which this world is made, and the nearer to God you will be. You'll be on the highway to blessing. But equally, if you ignore the right regulations, your, your handling and tasting and touching uh, the things that you shouldn't, well, then the further from God you will be, and you'll be on the road to nowhere. The elementary principles of this world, the stoichia. You can see, therefore, why some translators have rendered it the elemental spirits of the world, because this false teaching, as we said before, it's pulling in Jewish elements, it's pulling in pagan Greek elements, and in pagan Greek thinking, behind the physical lies the spiritual, the unseen powers. So if you handle the physical wrongly, you might let in the dark powers. If you handle the physical correctly, well then you can touch the light, as it were. It's a world of magic and mystery, isn't it? So the stoichia, it's the elementary principles of this world. It's the building blocks. It's the stuff. It's the fabric. This sort of thing. That sort of thing. This stuff of which the world is made. That's what it's talking about, the stoichia, the building blocks. If you use it all correctly, following the rules and regulations, all the stuff about what you shouldn't, shouldn't do, you will get near to God and you'll prosper spiritually. Use it wrongly, well, well just don't. Point number one, stoichia. Point number two, the stoichia make the difference. Let's try and climb into this mindset. Because actually it's not that far from us. I was born and bred a Roman Catholic, as, as some of you uh, were. In Roman Catholicism, the stoichia make the difference. 
So, what's the holiest day of the year in Roman Catholicism? Well, it's Easter Sunday. So the holiest day of the year, the holiest Sunday of the year, is Easter Sunday. On what date does Easter Sunday fall? Well, that's dependent on the timing of the full moon. That's why Easter's a little bit earlier this year. So where we are in relation to the moon affects the holiness of a Sunday, affects how close to God you are. The stoichia make a difference. I go to Mass. I enter the church. I put my fingers in some holy water. And with that holy water, I make a sign of the cross. But it's holy water. It's been blessed. It's not ordinary water. Holy water because the stoichia make a difference. Into the building I go. I, I walk up the aisle towards the altar. It's the holiest place in the building, the altar, where there's the tabernacle, where there will be the, the wafers, the hosts, representing the body of Christ. We'll come to that in a moment. But as I walk towards the altar, that end of the building is more holy than the other end of the building. So where I'm standing in relation to north, south, east, and west affects how holy things are. And of course, as I'm, as I'm approaching a, a holier wall, that wall is holier than the other wall, so I'm on my best behavior. And before I take my seat in the pew, I, I, I genuflect, I bow before the altar. Because the stoichia make a difference. It's more holy at that end of the building than the other end of the building. At the Mass, the wafer becomes literally the body of Christ. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the priest will say. And he, he really means that. He really has become the Lamb of God. Transubstantiation, the body of Christ. The body of Christ which I now eat. Having, of course, fasted for an hour beforehand. Because the contents of my stomach affect my receiving of Christ. What's in here affects how spiritually I benefit from a wafer. It's all the stoichia, isn't it? It's all the stuff of which this world is made. Because the stoichia make a difference. Okay, what does the wafer, what does the Eucharist do for me? Well, in the teaching, I'm literally eating the body of Christ. I'm receiving, therefore, Christ into myself. Christ becomes my food, giving me life cleansing, renewal. Do I need faith in Christ in order for that to be effective? So the answer the Roman Catholic Church gives is no. The consecrated wafer itself is enough. It's the Catholic doctrine of ex opere operato. I don't need faith for the sacrament to be effective. I don't need faith for the sacrament to do its thing. Because the thing itself, the food, the wafer, made of the stuff of this world, that's all you need. Because the stoichia make a difference. So, 
there was a, an episode where a priest was uh, holding a, a consecrated wafer in his hand, okay, the body of Christ, according to the teaching, and a rat ran out, uh, ran across the altar, stole the wafer, disappeared down a rat hole. Did that mean the rat had taken Holy Communion? After all, you don't need faith in order for the wafer to make a difference, because the thing itself is what makes the difference. Well, there was a gathering of theological minds, um, and after they discussed the matter, they made a pronouncement. They said, yes, the rat had taken Holy Communion, uh, but it wasn't valid because the rat hadn't been baptised. <laughs> now, that's the logic of stoichia. The rat had submitted itself to one of the regulations. It had eaten the consecrated wafer. It had therefore received the body of Christ. But the rat hadn't submitted to one of the other regulations, the sprinkling of water. And therefore its taking of communion wasn't valid. The rat wouldn't benefit spiritually from taking communion. At no point was Christ involved. Do you see the point? My closeness to God doesn't depend upon a right relationship with God. Closeness to God depends upon my right relationship with the stuff of which this world is made. If I'm right with the stuff, then I will be right. So the right food, the right drink, new moons, where I'm standing in the building... Feast days, get all those right, the right stuff in the right way, at the right time, in the right place, and you will be close to God. That's why people go on pilgrimages, don't they? Lots of religions, they go on pilgrimages to holy places. My feet taking me somewhere north, south, east, and west to a particular place. That particular place is more holy than other places in the north, south, east, and west. But as long as my feet are standing there, the story can make a difference. Or I bathe in a holy river. That river's not holy. That river is holy. If I bathe in that river, it makes no difference. I bathe in that river, it does make a difference. That's why people cultivate certain lifestyles. And, of course, some of them are carried to extremes. Paul talks here about uh, asceticism, severity to the body. It's saying no to the pleasures of the body in order to open my soul to enlightenment and, and deeper and greater super-spiritual experiences. That's what it's about. So, a Japanese Buddhist monk, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, so Yusai Sakai, um, only one of a handful of men to complete, and I'll mispronounce this, I'm sure, uh, something that's called the Seneki Kayahogu, okay, which is a seven-year search for enlightenment. This seven-year search for enlightenment includes extreme acts of devotion to Buddha. Well, how extreme? Well, the final act is an epic trek across the mountains where the devotee walks 51 miles each day for a hundred consecutive days. All right, you're walking 51 miles each day, and you have to do it for a hundred days. Well, this particular gentleman, he completed it. He'd set off at midnight. He'd arrive at the next place at nine in the evening. Having walked 51 miles, he'd have three hours sleep. He'd be up again at midnight, and off he would go. 
Each time he walked, each time he did his daily 51 miles, he carried with him a knife and a rope. Why? Because if for any reason he failed to complete one day, a 51-mile trek, the rule is that you commit suicide. So if he gets a blister, if he gets charged by a wild boar, if he trips over and twists his ankle... It's the end of your quest. You can't complete one of the days. You therefore have to take your life. That really is it's extreme asceticism, isn't it? Abstaining from the pleasures of the body to achieve a, a sort of higher spiritual state. But do it. Submit yourself to the regulations. Let the stuff of this world, the pacing across a mountain... Let the stuff of this world define your spirituality and you will be okay. You will arrive. Because according to this idea, the stoichia make a difference. So it's not just so rooted in here, is it? All world religions and philosophies, they all carry this with them. So point number three. Says Paul the Stoichia, make no difference. Why do you submit to regulations? Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. So I use the holy water, but it then evaporates. I eat the wafer, but it's then digested. I offer prayers with incense, but the incense disperses. I light a candle, but then the candle burns itself out. And the priest with these different vestments and so on, those vestments get dirty and moth-eaten and torn. Says Paul, how can things that perish bring you near to the eternal God? Does that mean after they've perished, after by using them and, and they no longer exist, does that mean you have to start all over again? All this fuss and, and faff about the right regulations, the right handling of the stoichia, Says Paul, it makes no difference at all. So the woman at the well. As Jesus and the woman are talking, she says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she says, it's a bit of a red herring really, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and, now, and is now here when the true worshippers of God will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus, it's not about whether you worship on that holy mountain or whether you're in Jerusalem at the temple. It's not about that mountain or this building. You know, do those things right and you'll be right with God. No, 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 no. It's about a right relationship. A right relationship with God. And as Paul has been hammering, the only way you have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ to take our Japanese monk. 
verse 23 of Colossians. Uh, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. A Japanese monk, what privations, what self-control, what mastery over the body. And it all looks very impressive. But says Paul, it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It makes absolutely no difference at all as to whether you're holy or unholy, clean or unclean, forgiven or unforgiven. Whether you have real control. It makes no difference whether or not you're in a right relationship with God. But it's very appealing, isn't it? These things indeed, uh, these, sorry, these, have, it, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. The world looks at it and thinks, that's wise. That's enlightenment. Show me the way. Now, Sherlock Holmes, he's, he doesn't exist. Yeah, he's a, but he had a massive intellect, didn't he? Holmes can, it's elementary, can work things out. So when Conan Doyle brought him back from the dead in the story The Empty House, where had Holmes been in the meantime? Well, he'd been here, there and everywhere. But one of the things he'd said, because of his great intellect, he'd been conversing with the Dalai Lama. See, great minds, great minds, an appearance of, of wisdom. When the Beatles sought enlightenment, where did they go? They traveled to Rishikesh in India, under the Maharishi Yogi, to learn transcendental meditation, because, well, you're going up into the mountains, and, and it's all about the mind, and it's enlightenment, and it has, indeed, an appearance of wisdom. It, it can look impressive, can't it? Intoxicating. Where do I go? How do I find out? How do I touch the light? Where's the door? But, says Paul, it's, it's just been made up. Verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings. Verse 23, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. It's just been made up. Somebody's thought about it, thought, oh, that's a good idea, why don't we do that? And then it gets told to other people, and then it becomes a tradition, and then everyone thinks, oh yes, that's the way. But somebody just thought it up one day. It was their idea. Other people added to it or took away from it, and you get what looks very, very wise, but it's simply come out of someone's head. And it's far from the new heart, the new life, the new trajectory, the new me which Christ gives. It's just the same old you, isn't it? These indeed, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but because it's still the same old you, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Messing about with the stoichia, rearranging the religious deck chairs in this world, rules and regulations, self-denial, doesn't make you clean on the inside, doesn't change the real you. And what Jesus said, Mark's Gospel, Uh, Mark chapter 7, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person, stoichia, 
from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his sorry, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. So manipulating what's without, playing around with the stoichia, the rules and regulations, don't change what's going on inside. The real you. The only one who can change the real me, the only one who can change the inside, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says, the stoichia, this false teaching says, oh, what a difference they make. Do this, don't do that. Says Paul, they make no difference at all. So point number four, the knockout blow. All this man-made religion Verse 21. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. Okay, so it said it's all been made up by somebody. So if it's been made up by somebody and it's not been revealed to you by God, why, Colossians, are you worrying about it? More than that, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world? Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? What's Paul saying? Well, he's, he's taking us back, isn't he, to what he said in verses 11 to 14. I won't go through all that again. But you remember what we said. We, we divided the chapel into two. Okay, there's that side and there's that side. There's a, there's a division down the middle. This side is the old corrupt world. It's under the curse. It's cut off from God. This side is God's new world, holy, under his blessing, in fellowship with God. The old world bequeathed to us by Adam, the new world. And the question which all religions and philosophies seek to answer, seek to address, is how can the fallen children of Adam They'll put it in different ways, but the question is there in everyone's minds. How do the fallen children of Adam, how do they break on through? How do they escape the the brokenness, the cursedness of this world, this world of sin and death and suffering? How do they escape that and break on through to a better world? And all the world's philosophies and religions say the answer is found in the stoichia. If you can manipulate the stuff of, of, of this world, then you can get out of this world. That's the idea. But it's like trying to climb to the moon by... Again, so it's like trying to get to the moon by climbing a ladder, isn't it? What's rooted in this world won't get me out of this world. What's rooted in this world won't enable me to break on through to God's new world. Whatever I do in this world with the stuff of this world, it's just simply man-made religion and philosophy. I can't get out of it. So how do we break on through? That's been Paul's answer in this chapter. You break on through through Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, into this world I was born. So what did God do to me? 
Did he give me lots of rules and regulations? He said, you keep those. Root the ladder in the ground of this world and climb in that ladder and you might find yourself being able to, to touch heaven. Is that what he said? He said, you're born into this world. Cursed child of Adam. So what did God do? He united us to Christ. And therefore I died with Christ. So now I'm dead to this world. But then just as Christ rose from the dead and pioneered a way through to God's new world, so united to Christ, I'm raised with him to a new life. And my life is now where Christ is, in God's new world. I've broken on through of the old world to the new world. And that's the whole stuff of chapter 3, which Paul will go on to talk about. It's strange to our thinking, isn't it? But actually, when you stop and think about it, yes, yes, yes. All the world's philosophies, how do I get out of the mess that we're in? And all I've got to play with is the stuff of which this world is made. And God says, no, 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 I put you to death with Christ. And I raise you to life with Christ. Where is Christ in God's new world? You've broken on through in Christ. So you see what Paul is saying in verse 20. If I've already broken on through with Christ, dead to this world and alive to God's new world, why resort to the stoichia, the stuff of the old world, to give me what I already have in Christ. Makes no difference. Makes no sense at all, does it? Why, sub why submit yourself to rules and regulations which can't help you when the thing you're seeking to do you already have <laughs> with Christ? So now you see the, how it all fits together. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, to the stoichia, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to the stoichia, to, to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they use, because they're the stoichia, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. People have been very clever about it. In promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity of the body, or they can play around with the stoichia, but it's all still rooted in this world. And if you play around with it, you'll still be rooted in this world. Which is why they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Madness, isn't it? Having reached the moon, if I can put it like that, you realise how absurd it was to try to get to the moon by climbing a ladder. So you say, I never, don't need a ladder anymore. When I was converted, I remained in the Catholic Church for a number of years. I was converted outside the Catholic Church through Christian friends. Um, but I remained in the Catholic Church for a number of years. My upbringing had, had rooted it deeply in my soul, and there's a sense in which it was part of my upbringing and part of my identity, and I, I kind of loved my Catholicism. But it began to dawn on me, doing all the right things, you know, walking up to the altar and then genuflecting. Well, what was that about? My mind was somewhere else usually. I wasn't doing anything doing the right things in the right way, in the right place, did nothing for me. It began to dawn on me, I, I, I'm already forgiven. I know the Lord. He's assured me of eternal life. My life is changing profoundly. 
and has nothing to do whatever with all these rules and regulations, doing the right things in the right way at the right time in the right place. What's going on in me, what's changing me, got nothing to do with those things. It is because of Christ. The person I once was who looked to those things to make me clean and holy and near to God, that Gerard Hemmings is now dead. So why go back to those things? I'm now joined to Jesus Christ. He's pioneered a way through to God's new world. I'm already joined to him, although I'm not physically there. The realities of that world are already breaking into my life. And the values of that world are the values by which I'm seeking to live. That Gerard Hemmings is dead. But it's a new Gerard Hemmings. A new me, born again. I've started again. It's a new beginning with a new heart that now beats for the Lord, a new life, a new trajectory, a new destination, a new me, alive in Christ. So if I'm alive in Christ, what use are those things? I don't need them. I don't need the old ways. And says, Paul, if you, if you get that, that you were, the person you were is dead and you've been raised to a new life, so why are you playing about with the stuff that you played about with when you were dead that got you nowhere? If you get that, death, resurrection, new you, it'll be the knockout blow for the stoichia. Let's put it simply, yeah? We don't need religion. We don't need religion. What do we need? We need the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. All we need is Christ. So point number five. A little nuancing. Does that mean we can ignore the elementary principles of the world, the stoichia? We can ignore them altogether. You know, the stuff of which this world is made doesn't matter at all. Just ignore it. Well, think about it. I'm still in this body. I've yet to have a resurrection body. I'm still part of the fabric of this old world. So I do handle and taste and touch. I interact with the world, don't I, through, through my body. You know, if I run into that wall... It will hurt me. So food and drink. I don't need the right food and drink to be right with God. Refusing to eat pork, being a vegetarian, doesn't make me a better Christian. Abstaining from alcohol doesn't make me holy. But if I'm greedy and I eat too much, that will harm me spiritually. The danger is not in the food. The danger is in my lack of self-control. If I drink alcohol and get drunk, that will harm me spiritually. If there's a brother or a sister who my drinking of alcohol might cause them to stumble, well, better I don't drink at all because by drinking I could cause them to stumble and the harm that is done. If I refuse the Lord's Supper because I say, well, food and drink 
doesn't matter. It's a stoichia. What difference does that make? It's unimportant. But if I don't take the Lord's Supper, um, that will harm me spiritually. Because when I eat and I drink the Lord's Supper, I do so in fellowship with Christ and with his people. It's a shared meal with our beloved in anticipation of the day when he brings me into his banqueting house and his banner over us is love. And that's why he says, do this in remembrance of me. If I say, you know, Sunday's just like any other day, isn't it? It just depends, you know, the earth turning and where you are in relation to the sun. Um, So it doesn't matter. I keep every day special or no day special. If I say that, then I forget actually that the first day of the week was by Christ marked out in a special way. On the first day of the week, he rose from the dead. On the first day of the week, he, he met with his disciples, showed them his wounds, breathed his spirit upon them, gave them the assurance. Thomas had to wait till the next Sunday before he got the assurance that he needed. And on the first day of the week, the Spirit of God at Pentecost was poured out. God has marked out the first day of the week as being different. It's the, new, it's, the, it's the Sabbath of the new creation. It's a day of His presence, a day of His power. So I can't just say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter. It's just where we are revolving around the sun as to which day of the week it is. Actually, it does make a difference, keeping the first day of the week special. It does matter. So we're nuancing this a bit, aren't we? I don't need a certain lifestyle to draw near to God. You know, if I, if I exercise daily and uh, go to the gym and I'm developing a, 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 a wonderful, masterful body and I have cold showers, early starts, those things won't make me a better Christian. But if I'm lazy and I don't discipline my body, and I can't be bothered to put myself out for Christ, and I choose a a sedentary lifestyle, loafing around, sleeping, being lazy, and that keeps me from the prayer meeting, that keeps me from coming and hearing God's Word. If I choose an unfit lifestyle, so I have less energy and opportunity for the good works that God has prepared for me, well, then that will spiritually harm me, because I have a body and I interact with the world around me. Do you see the point? It's a, there is a nuancing that's going on here. You have to think about it. What will make me a better Christian? Does a suit and tie on a Sunday make me a better Christian? Um, I was having a Sunday off. I went to another church and uh, I, I had my suit jacket and trousers on but I had no tie. I had an open neck shirt and I hadn't shaved. And uh, it came back to me that some of the people I spoke to are a bit concerned. What's happened to Gerard? He's, he's, he's in spiritual decline. He's lost his tie. Looking a bit stubbly. Well, earnest prayers make me a better Christian. I've really prayed about this. Or fasting. Or recycling. Well, that made me a better Christian. Well, those things make me more godly. What about brown bread? Years ago, Mandy and I fed and watered a couple of Scottish homeless. They were homeless. They were Scottish ladies. Came to our house and we, we, we fed them and looked after them a little bit. And they said to us, why do Christians always have brown bread? 
Are those things more holy than the white pasty bread? Now, there might be good reasons for all those things. There's a reason, if you want to ask me why I wear a suit and a tie when I preach. I have reasons for it. But they are not a mark of our spirituality. They're not a mark of our standing before God. Because, of course, a non-Christian could do all of those things. They can fast, pray long prayers, dress as they should, and all the rest of it. They can do all of those things. The right food, drink, the right regulations, all that kind of stuff. And not know the Lord at all. When it comes to progress in the Christian life, when it comes to spirituality and godliness, what do I need? All I need is Christ. How then does that work out, living in this world? And that, Colossians chapter 3, is the challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've picked our way through these verses. Some of the things are very familiar to us and make sense, and some of the things, our Father, can sometimes sound strange. But we pray that as we hear your word, you would root it in our hearts, that it would shape our minds, our thinking. That, Lord God, we, there's more of the Stoichia false teaching in our bones than sometimes we realize. But more than that, our God, we, we thank you that it's not by being told not to that we're persuaded, but it's by seeing who Jesus Christ is and all his loveliness and sufficiency. Oh, our God, the all-surpassing beauty and majesty of our beloved. We pray, therefore, that we might be taken up with Christ taken up with Christ, and therefore we would make real progress in the Christian life, and that we as a church family would grow into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, and more and more bear his image and his beauty, and for your glory. We pray you by your Spirit would take these things and put them upon our hearts and teach us and change us, that we might bring you pleasure and glory because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.